Apollo Control Houston, uh, 55 hours, 7 minutes. We now show Apollo 13 at 176,598 nautical miles. Uh, Roger, Houston. What we plan to do for you today is turn out in the uh, spaceship or uh, Odyssey. That's Jim Lovell, commander of Apollo 13, the seventh manned mission in the Apollo space program. It's April 1970, and just nine months ago, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin made history when they walked on the moon. And now Jim Lovell and his small crew of Jack Swaggart and Fred Hayes are attempting to do the same thing. They're on their way to land on the moon. Or at least that's what the three astronauts on board think. But Jim Lovell and his crew are wrong. They're not heading for the moon. They're heading for disaster. In just a few short minutes, they'll become the central players in NASA's greatest emergency. That's a great picture, Jim. Uh, you got the light just right. The picture's coming through real good, and uh, your description is good. We see uh, Jim's got the camera oriented uh, the way we like to look at it. Right now, the astronauts are hosting a TV broadcast from space, and Lovell and Hayes are giving the viewers a tour of their spacecraft, Odyssey. And they're pointing out equipment and explaining instrumentation, they're talking about the helmets they'll wear on the moon, and Hayes is explaining how easy it is to move around in zero gravity. And uh, you can see I'm weighing myself right now, and says uh, I weigh uh, actually less than zero right now. Right now, they're 55 hours into the mission and 200,000 miles from home. The same distance is flying around the Earth eight times, or about three million football fields placed end to end. The broadcast runs on for another 25 minutes, and then NASA decides to bring it to a close. Okay, Jim, uh, it's been a real good TV show. Uh we think we ought to conclude it from here now. Uh, what do you think? Roger, sounds good. And this is the crew of Apollo 13. Wish everybody there a nice evening. Now, because this is the third manned mission to the moon, it doesn't receive much fanfare. Not a single US TV network has carried the broadcast they've just made. And as the crew begin to pack up for the night, Houston comes on the calm with one final task for the crew. And it's this request that will set the crew and the entirety of NASA on their collision course with disaster. Roger, we copy. Uh, and the uh, TV show was great. Okay, real fine. 13, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. Okay, stand by. Mission Control asks the crew to stir their cryo tanks tanks that carry their liquid oxygen and hydrogen. Stirring these tanks is usually standard procedure, but not this time. By flicking the switch to stir oxygen tank 2, power is sent to a pair of fans via Teflon shielded wires within the tank. But this Teflon insulation has been damaged. And now, 200,000 miles from Earth, the 
cracked and flaked Teflon insulation fails, and the wires spark. A violent fire erupts, and the pressure in oxygen tank 2 rises rapidly, and the tank explodes. The explosion rips off the outer panel of the spacecraft and hurls it into space. The spacecraft begins to rotate wildly. The crew's instrumentation panel is lit up with warning lights and the noise of the master alarm is bouncing around the spacecraft. Swigert and Lovell jump on the comm to Houston. Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. This explosion has crippled their ship. And in charge of this crippled mission is Jim Lovell, the man who wasn't even meant to be an astronaut at all. This is Saving Apollo 13. Over the next six episodes, you'll hear the incredible story of the spacecraft that failed en route to the moon and the feats of human ingenuity that saved the lives of the three men aboard. We'll follow astronauts Jim Lovell, Jack Swaggart and Fred Hayes, as well as scores of people at NASA's Mission Control, as they solve problem after problem and try to answer the question. How do you keep three men alive in space when their oxygen tank just blew a hole in the side of their spacecraft? I'm Sean Brady. Forensic Engineer. This is Episode 1. Houston, we've had a problem. To begin this story properly, we need to wind back the clock. We need to understand just who Jim Lovell was and how he got here. And to do that, we need to start our story in 1958. Now, at the time, he's at the Navy's Aircraft Test Center in Pikes River, Maryland. He's 29 years old, his wife is six months pregnant, and he already has a four-year-old daughter and two-year-old son. He joined the Navy, became a naval aviator, and now he's a test pilot. And to get this job, he had to go through test pilot school, where he graduated top of his class. And this class had included an impressive bunch of people. Among them were two men by the name of Wally Shearer, and Pete Conrad. Then one day, he gets a telex telling him to attend a military briefing at the Dolly Madison House in Washington, D.C. Now, there are a number of things about this briefing that are odd. Firstly, he's told to go to the Dolly Madison House, not the Pentagon. And he's told to wear a suit, not his uniform. And then there's this secrecy about it all. He's told to tell no one he's attending. Not his wife or friends, nor anyone in his squadron. He gets up the next morning, heads outside for the drive to Washington, throws his overnight bag in the car, and then he notices that he's not the only one leaving. Pete Conrad seems to be leaving as well, as is Wally Shearer. But by the time Lovell arrives in Washington, the secrecy is not that important anymore. Because this is 1958, and just months earlier, the Russians had launched a satellite called Sputnik. 
So the US had responded by creating a new organization, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. Now the enormity of the task NASA has ahead of it is insane. They want to put a man in space, but to do that, they have to do two things. They have to actually build a spacecraft and they have to find people willing to make the trip. These people are going to be called astronauts or star sailors. And NASA has worked out the qualities they believe these astronauts will need. And then they pass these requirements to the Air Force and the Navy. And the Air Force and the Navy spat back 110 names. Jim Lovell is one of those names. Now, Lovell watches a man take to the podium and address the crowd. He tells them he is Dr. Robert Gilroot and he says they are here to discuss Project Mercury. He explains that they want to put a man in space within the next three years. And they're going to do this by putting him in a capsule and then put this capsule on top of an Atlas booster, which is a ballistic missile. Then they want to fire this missile and capsule into space. He says some of the very men in this room will make these first flights. Then he says he's happy to take questions. So a hand goes up and someone asks, didn't these Atlas boosters regularly blow up on the launch pad and never get into the air at all? And Gilroyd says, yes, this has happened, but they're working on it. Then another hand goes up. Has a prototype of this capsule been built? Gilroyd replies, no, but they have some blueprints. Then someone asks what happens if these rockets don't work. And Gilroyd replies that that's why they want test pilots. Then the meeting breaks up. Lovell is dumbfounded. This idea seems completely crazy. So the group from Pax River head to the Marriott Hotel to talk. And initially they're not sure about it. They sort of decide this thing will probably be bad for their military careers. But despite all this talk, Jim Lovell has already decided he's going to apply. He's been obsessed with rockets since he was a kid. And there's no way in the world he's going to pass this up. And despite all the doubts people expressed, everyone seems to have made the same decision as Lovell. They're going to give this space thing a go. They're sent in groups of six or seven to the Lovelace Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico for a week of medical tests. And these tests are mad. There are cardiac x-rays, hyperventilation tests and intestinal tests. There are even fertility tests. Their sinuses are probed, their stomachs pumped, their prostate glands squeezed. It's a nightmare. And there's a problem. Lovell finds himself sitting in front of a doctor and the doctor asks him if he's been ill lately. Lovell says he doesn't think he has. And then the doctor tells him his Billy Rubin's a little high. Lovell says he doesn't even know what Billy Rubin is. So the doctor tells him it's a natural liver pigment and that he has a little too much of it. This can happen when you've been sick. And Lovell can't believe it. Of the six men in his group, only five are told to report for further tests. Lovell has failed. NASA doesn't want him. And he's sent back to Pax River. But he isn't alone. Weeks later, Pete Conrad's back too. He doesn't get in either. And not long after, Lovell is sitting in his family quarters and watching TV as NASA introduces its first ever astronauts to the world. There are seven. And one of them is Wally Shearer. And over the next three years, Lovell watches as NASA moves from success to success. There's the 15-minute flight of Al Shepard, the first American in space. 
There's John Glenn's Earth Orbit Flight. Then one day, as program Mercury is coming to an end in the summer of 1962, Lovell is flicking through a copy of the Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine, and a headline catches his eye. NASA will add new astronauts. It goes on to say that NASA expects to add between 5 and 10 more, and almost immediately Lovell decides he'll volunteer again. He'll never forgive himself if he doesn't, but he knows this time it'll be so much harder. He's older, he's 34 now, and everyone wants to be involved. There's going to be a lot more applicants this time around. But he doesn't care. He applies, he sits the tests, and this time he makes it through the first set, and he's sent for interviews. On the 13th of September 1962, someone answers the phone in the squad room and calls to Lovell. It's for you. Lovell asks who it is, and he's told the caller won't say. On the line is Deke Slayton, the Director of Flight Crew Operations for NASA, the man that decides who gets to be an astronaut. Slayton says, I was wondering if you'd like to come work for us. Lovell's so nervous, he says, would I? Slayton laughs and says, that's what I'm asking you. Lovell stammers, yes, yes, of course. So Slayton tells him what to do next and hangs up. Then Lovell calls his wife, Marilyn. When she answers the phone, he says, we're moving. She says, where? Lovell says, Houston. seconds, the Saturn rocket bearing Apollo 13 is due to lift off from the pad directly in front of me. I'm Bob Walker with Merrill Muller at Launch Complex 39, Cape Kennedy. Everything is gold for Apollo 13. The skies are hazy. Astronauts Jim Lovell, Jack Swaggart and Fred Hayes... It's the 11th of April 1970, eight years since the phone call from Deke Slayton. And Jim Lovell has had a successful career with NASA. He's been an astronaut and he's already been in space three times. And today is the launch of Apollo 13. Jim Lovell is woken that morning just before 9am. He spent the night in the manned spacecraft operations building along with his crewmates. And Jim Lovell is the commander of this mission. And sitting beside him is his lunar module pilot, Fred Hayes. He'll make the journey down to the surface of the moon along with Lovell in the lunar module. And there's Jack Swaggart, command module pilot, who'll orbit the moon while they are on the surface. Then they head off to suit up. Biomed sensors are attached, spacesuits and headsets are put on, then their helmets are placed over their heads and clipped into place. From this point onwards, the three men are breathing pure oxygen. Just out to our left, a jam with about 4,500 guests. Vice President Agnew, Chancellor Billy Brown of West Germany, U.S. Uh, Secretary of State William Rogers head the list of distinguished guests. The Lovell is the first to enter the command module at 11.32 a.m. There are three seats inside, called couches. Lovell slides across to the left couch and he's strapped in. Then Hayes is helped in, again into the center couch, and then he slides across to the right-hand seat. And then he's strapped in too. Finally, Jack Swaggart is helped into the center couch and strapped in as well. But the interesting thing is, Jack Swaggart, at least up until a few days ago, wasn't even meant 
to be here. We had a problem with measles earlier this week, as I'm sure you all know. The measles hassle started last Monday with Charles Duke, a member of the backup crew. Duke came down with the measles, and since the prime crew worked so intimately with the backup crew, everybody got exposed. A series of extensive blood tests here at the Cape in Houston and at the National Institute of Health in Washington confirmed that Ken Mattingly, the command module pilot, had no antibodies to ward off the measles. He could come down at any time. So Mattingly was scratched from the mission, and that's where a civilian astronaut named Jack Swigert comes into the picture. Red the time is just after 11.44 a.m. It's T minus two hours and 29 minutes to lift off. For the next two hours, the men wait patiently, going through checklists and final procedures. Lovell looks around the command module. This is the conical-shaped craft attached to the top of the rocket. The three men are lying on their backs, looking up towards the top of the cone. In front of them is the main instrument panel, covered in switches. Now They won't need to do much during the launch. These are needed for the flight to the moon. The Saturn V rocket will largely do its own thing. It's got its own guidance system, and its job is to put them into orbit around the Earth, then to shoot them towards their rendezvous with the moon. And the men continue to wait. For Lovell, who's been in a rocket many times before, this is a whole lot easier than it is for Swagger and him. I'm speaking now from firing room one, launch control. A big room, perhaps three times the size of mission control in Houston. It's a bright, well-lighted room, filled with consoles painted in a light shade of gray. Walls are cream-colored, and there are windows to the rear, huge slanted windows through which people can see the launch pad three and a half miles away. But most of the 500 people in this room won't watch that rocket. They'll be too busy following the launch from console positions, reading out data, looking at black and white television from the 85 camera positions that monitor every critical phase of the Apollo 13 operation. The Saturn V has three stages. In a way, it's like three separate cylindrical rockets stacked on top of one another. The first stage at the bottom is 42 meters long and inside are two huge fuel tanks, one on top of the other. One is kerosene and above that is a tank of supercooled liquid oxygen. It'll burn for about the first two and a half minutes into the flight. Above stage one is stage two, which is 25 meters long. And this stage is very different. This stage is fired with liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. It'll burn from about the two and a half minute mark to the nine minute mark. And then there's stage three, known as the S-4B, the only part of the rocket that'll fire twice. It'll fire around the nine minute mark and it'll complete putting Apollo 13 into Earth's orbit. Then it'll fire again to push it out of Earth's orbit and send it on a trajectory towards the moon. And once this firing takes place, the engine is shut down and Apollo 13 essentially coasts towards the moon. But all this is ahead of them. And in the meantime, Lovell, Swigert and Hayes lie there. This is Apollo Saturn launch control, T-minus 5 minutes, 27 seconds and counting. Now as we move into the final phase of the countdown, we're receiving go-no-go -go checks from various elements of the launch team. The spacecraft test conductor, Skip Chauvin, gave the test supervisor a spacecraft ready. At that time, on our large status board here in the firing room, the green light came on behind the spacecraft. Green light now is also on behind the emergency detection system. Now standing by for more checks, the uh, mission director, Chet Lee, from the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, says we are go for launch. And then, it finally hits Lovell. This is actually going to happen. He's going to the moon again. He's been so busy doing the final checks that he hasn't had time to process it. 
But now, from an emotional perspective, it hits him that this is really going to happen. Our count continues to go well. We'll be looking for an ignition of those five first-stage engines at the T-minus 8.9 But before all that, they need to get off the ground. So at T-minus 8.9 seconds, the ignition sequence will begin. Ignition sequence has started. The center engine will fire first, then two diagonal engines will fire, then the opposite two will fire. Engines will then go through a power procedure to bring them up to full thrust. And when all five engines are running, they'll consume 13 and a half ton of fuel per second. And at this point, the Saturn V will be hunting for launch. These huge engines will be twisting and gimbling to keep the rocket facing in the right direction. Then after 10 seconds, they'll clear the tower and control of the mission will move to Mission Control in Houston. The rocket will begin pitching and rolling and changing trajectory so that Saturn V can get on its correct course. Then they'll go through the region of maximum dynamic pressure. Now this is the point in the flight when they'll still be pushing through the atmosphere and the aerodynamic forces on the rocket will be at their yeah, highest. Engineer, reports we're now through the region of maximum dynamic pressure and we'll go. Now they are set for staging. Altitude now 17 miles coming up on staging. The engines of the first stage will shut down, a ring of explosives around the rocket will detonate and they'll physically chop the first stage clean off the rocket. Jim Lovell reports the inboard engine has shut down as scheduled. This will expose the engines on the bottom of stage 2. The stage 2 will fire and it will push them further on their way. No then they'll jettison the launch escape tower and abort procedure that's no longer needed. And then it starts to go wrong. Of the five engines of stage two, the center engine is supported on a crossbeam, and this crossbeam is starting to vibrate. It's at risk of tearing itself apart if these vibrations grow. And if it tears itself apart, it'll destroy the rocket and the mission will be over. So the Saturn V automatically shuts down this center engine. Uh, booster reports that the inboard engine uh, shutdown was a bit early. Uh, we're continuing to burn on the uh, four outboard engines. Jim, uh, Houston, we don't have a story on why the inboard out was uh, early, but the uh, other engines are go and you're go. This saves the mission, but the engine has shut down two minutes and 12 seconds earlier than it should have. And this drop in trust is a big deal. One engine cut out early on the second stage, and they'll need a little more boost, a little more time from the third stage engine for the orbit they want. We still have four good engines on the Saturn second stage. We show an altitude of 96 nautical miles, 545 downrange. Despite all the hassle of the stage two engine shutdown, the Saturn V has put Apollo 13 in an orbit that is within 1.3 miles per hour from where it should be. They are traveling around the Earth at 17,429 miles per hour. That's Jim Lovell. 
Confirming the word from the ground from Joe Kerwin, another astronaut, who just said don't mention it because he passed the word that the S-4B, although burned overtime, is safe for continued operations. They're in orbit. They can make their preparations to go on to the moon, which takes place, uh, the launching toward the moon takes place a revolution and a half from now over Australia. What seemed like a crazy scheme in the Dolly Madison house in Washington, D.C. is again reality. For the fourth time, NASA has put Jim Lovell in space. That's the old veteran. Yeah, this is his last space flight. A man who already has 500 and some odd hours in space and will, by the end of this space flight, flight have spent a month of his life above the Earth. Nobody else can say that. Gemini 7, Gemini 12, Apollo 8, and now Apollo 13. That's a long way to go. By Apollo 13, no Americans have been killed in space. But astronauts had died, and by far the blackest day for NASA was the 27th of January, 1967. In the run-up to this day, the whole Apollo program had been under huge pressure. Mission Control was having problems with its computers, astronaut training was falling behind because of issues with simulators, and the command module design was showing lots of problems. And one of these problems was the wiring in the spacecraft. And on the 27th of January 1967, NASA is conducting a plugs-out test on the command module. The craft is fully pressurised with pure oxygen. Inside are three fully suited astronauts, Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee. Now this pure oxygen environment is important because when you're in a pure oxygen environment that's pressurised, you certainly don't want a spark. At 5 hours, 31 minutes and 4 seconds into the test... One word crackles across the voice loop. Fire. This is followed by a frantic, we've got a fire in the cockpit. And then we've got a bad fire, get us out, we're burning up. This last sentence turns into a scream at the end. The entire exchange has taken 12 seconds. Pat crew rushed to the command module hatch with fire extinguishers. Shockwaves and secondary explosions knocked them off their feet. Some even get close enough to try and open the hatch, but the heat burns through their gloves. Smoke's all around them, and at this stage, it's too late. When the command module is opened later, the inside is blackened and charred. The remains of the three astronauts are found strapped in their seats. And in the days that follow, mesmerised people wander around Mission Control, trying to process what has happened. But one man knows what's happened. And by Monday morning, he's decided he's going to talk to the men in Mission Control. Because as far as he's concerned, he feels he's let the astronauts down. So on Monday morning, Jim Krantz, the flight director in Mission Control, walks up four steps to a small podium, and he looks out over a room of flight controllers and a few others. There are a hundred people there. Krantz is in his mid-thirties, was Air Force, and he'd flown in Korea. And he tells the controllers, himself included, that they have screwed up. We are the cause. We were not ready. We did not do our job. Then he tells them from this day forward, flight control will be known by two words. Tough and competent. And he tells them to go back to their rooms and write tough and competent on their blackboards. And he tells them never to erase these words. Each day that you enter the room, these words will remind you of the previous
price paid by Grissom, White and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. And now, three years later, Gene Kranz is about to discover just how tough and how competent mission control really is. Because he's lead flight director of Apollo 13. It's now over two days into the mission. Apollo 13 is about 200,000 miles from the Earth, with another 40,000 to go before it gets to the moon. Kranz's shift has been a quiet one, and it's coming to an end. Soon he'll take his white team off console, and they'll be replaced by flight director Glenn Lunny's black team. Kranz stands up and looks across the four rows of consoles in mission control. The front row of consoles look after where Apollo 13 is in space and where it's going, and contains the retro Fido and Guido. The second row keeps the men and the spacecraft functioning properly. There's the surgeon, the Capcom, the ECOM, the GNC, the Telmu, and control. Now the Capcom or capsule communicator is the only person in the room that can speak to the crew and they're always an astronaut. And on shift tonight is Jack Lausma. Now beside the Capcom is the ECOM and they look after the health of the command and service module and they make sure all the electrical and environmental systems are working well. And tonight on duty is Cy Liebergott. Now behind this row is Kranz's row, the flight director's console where Kranz is standing. He's in the middle, and to his left and right are other consoles which look after activities and instrumentation on the flight, such as the INCO. And behind Krantz, in the fourth row, are reps from the Department of Defence and a few other people, with a key person being Chris Kraft, the Director of Flight Operations. He's a legend in the room, and he's also Krantz's boss. And then, the TV broadcast begins. Okay, Jim, uh, it's been a real good TV show. Uh, we think we ought to conclude it. 13, we've got one more item for you when you get a chance. We'd like you to uh, stir up your cryo tanks. Okay, stand by. Instrumentation flights. Let me let me add them up. Roger. Okay, stand by. Thirteen. We're looking at it. We may have had an instrumentation problem. Well, we've got some problems Roger. with fuel cell one and two. If we believe the data, fuel we've got. cells one and three are offline. We've got main A volts. We have no main B volts. Down in mission control, Psi Liebergut's data goes wild. It disappears for a few seconds, then comes back, but it makes no sense. Sai knows that if these results are real, then something terribly wrong has happened to the spacecraft. The data for Oxygen Tank 2, which holds half the oxygen for the ship, has fallen to zero. To Sai, it looks like Oxygen Tank 2 doesn't exist anymore. Larry, you don't believe that O2 Tank 1 pressure day? No, no. No, first tank is good. And what Sai doesn't know, and what the crew doesn't know either, is that Oxygen Tank 2 is indeed gone. It's exploded. And this explosion has not only destroyed the tank itself, it's blown out the side of the service module, ripping off a panel and hurling it into space. 
gas is spraying wildly and pushing the ship around, and the ship's entrails are hanging out through the side of the shattered ship. This was Saving Apollo 13. If you liked the show, I'd love if you took the time to tell a friend about it. This show was produced by forensic engineering firm Brady Haywood. Brady Haywood specializes in forensic engineering and investigating the causes of failures. For more information, head to the website bradyhaywood.com.au. This show was written and narrated by me, Sean Brady. It was produced in partnership with the team at Waveland Creative, who helped write, edit and mix the show. Special thanks to everyone who reviewed my scripts, fact-checked and given valuable feedback while producing this podcast. And one last thing. If you've got a complicated idea that you want to communicate with your employees or customers, then making a podcast like this is a really great way to get your message across. And I really recommend Waveland Creative, who helped me produce this show. To talk to the team at Waveland about your idea, head to the website waveland.fm. There's a link in this episode's show notes.